picture it. Sicily, 1922. I'm Christmas Day. Jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle bells. And now, on with the opera. Let joy be unconfined. Let there be dancing in the streets, drinking in the saloons, and necking in the parlor. Hello, everybody, and welcome once again to a fun and exciting episode of Killers, Cults, and Nutjobs 2.0. We cover all crime. I'm, as always, your host, the great right. Try that again. My, my brain was moving faster than my mouth. It's been happening a lot this week. I am, as always... The great white snark, Scotty J. Seated across from me is the lovely and twisted Monica. Hi. I I have actually yeah, this week has been rough because my at times when I'm talking at work, my brain starts moving faster than my mouth. And I start tripping over words. And I've been having to do math I haven't done in decades. Ooh. Okay, this is something that I want to ask because I I know you're homeschooling, James. Do you have to do that Common Core? I mean, everything's pretty much set up for Common Core anyway. Because I've seen how they try to do that. I'm like, no, Old Way was quicker. Well, yeah, Old Way is quicker. Like, it makes, I hate to say it, it makes sense. I mean, it make, does make some sense. But it's also, it's like a lot longer. And it's like, you know, why? But he like, the way his like brain is like working with some of the stuff, his brain's almost like common core thinking, which is. Because I know like uh, Amanda's daughter, Charlotte, was showing me some of her math. And I'm how they do the common core. And I'm like, yeah, this hieroglyphics. Okay. Here, let me show you the quick way. Yeah, I had like, I mean, I was able to figure it out, but it was also like, for the love of God, like, what is the point? You know, like. Now, I did have a, a nice encounter last week. I I was at work. I was over, I've been working so much in the toy section, they should just put me over there. But I was loading up my cart and I came across my junior high social studies teacher. I, I saw the face and I was like, Mr. Owens? And he, he you know, I, I shook his hand and I told him the name. He goes, you know, I've had so many kids come through the class. I don't don't remember faces too well, but once you start talking, then, then it uh, all comes back. And he asked me what I was doing. I said, Well, I was studying for my master's in history, and uh, the, the smile on his face. Mm-hmm. It was like, I knew this kid was going to do it. Uh-huh. But we had a nice discussion, and he's, his son is principal or superintendent of a school around here. And if I really wanted, he could try to talk to a son to get me on board as a teacher. Well, that'd be good. Yeah. I would teach history and um, social studies, I think. Yeah, yeah. Because I'd walk in on the first day of civics and go, okay, this book is going to tell you how the government should be ran. 
Uh-huh. He wrote his book. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> Did you ever see uh, Rodney Dangerfield's uh, Back to School? Yeah, like, I mean, years and years, like, back in the 80s. So. Okay, when he was in the history class and the teacher was screaming... Well, the teacher was Sam Kinison, and I keep every time I come across it, I post it online and write me as a history teacher. Yeah, <laughs> I've had a few of my friends go, "Dude, that that would be you." Uh-huh. Ripping the chair off. Why do we push all the? Yeah. Like it'd be more in the Civil War where I'd be yelling. <laughs> Wait, I am. We're gonna wrap up. Uh, I'm I'm brain farting tonight because it, it it's been a long week. It it's been a rough week. We're we're going into Thanksgiving. We are wrapping up our Thanksgiving cannibal. I think I found next year's Thanksgiving cannibal already. Okay, so have to share it after. You know, I heard another podcast talking about him. I'm like, who who in the hell is this man? I found a book, so I'm going to order it. Okay. Well, this guy uh, was like, a, this guy was back in uh, like the Old West, 1840s. Mm-hmm. So before, before the Donner Party. Okay. Which the Donner Party would be another good Thanksgiving cannibal story. Yeah. But we felt like them more because I like one, I think like the library or something had a book on them. But that was actually even more just, it was kind of like with the plane crash with the live, the Donner oh, Party. That was more. Right. Like a, I have a book. It was more like, it wasn't, you know, choice. Right. I have a, well, I've got a book on my shelf. It's called The Indifferent Stars Above Us. It's about the Donner Party. I've been wanting to read it. Um, I, I should actually get around to reading it next year. Um, I gotta find. I, I really need to take some time and drive up to Michigan to the uh, true crime bookstore up there and go on a spending spree. Yeah. Buy new books. The new books for the show. You know. All right, we're gonna wrap up our. We're gonna wrap up uh, Jeffrey Dahmer this week. Um. As you know, last week, Jeffrey was on his munching spree. And I still love the, I still love the meme. And I might post it this week. I was eating five guys before it was fashionable. I don't know why that cracks me up like it does. Also, in in this one, um, I might remember some Sam Kinison jokes he made about Dahmer at the time. But we're going to wrap up the Thanksgiving Cannibal series, so here we go. Oh, man, I know what I was doing on this day. July 2nd, 1991. I I was like a few weeks away from going into naval boot camp. Well, it's July 22nd. Yeah, July 22nd. Yeah. 
I was like a few weeks away from going to boot camp. Yeah, well, there you go. <laughs> yeah, well, I went to Naval Boot Camp in Orlando, Florida in the middle of summer. Which is not the best time to go to Florida. Yeah, for anything, especially well, boot camp. Right, but I mean, when you wake up and humidity is already 85%. Yeah. At the five fact in that you the morning. Yeah, like, okay. Good. We could actually see, like, when we opened up our door to our compartment to go to, bre go to breakfast, you could see, like, right where the uh, air conditioner hit the humidity because there was, like, this mist. Uh -huh. yeah. yeah, five o'clock in the morning, humidity, 85%. Welcome to Florida. July 22nd, 1991, Dahmer approached three men with an offer of 100 bucks to accompany him to his apartment to pose for nude photographs, drink beer, and, well, you know, just hang out. All that for 100 bucks? That's not a bad price. Honestly. Now, one of the trio, 32-year-old Tracy Edwards, agreed to accompany him to his apartment. Upon entering the apartment, Edwards noticed a foul odor in several boxes of hydrochloric acid on the floor, which, you know, Dahmer claimed to use for uh, cleaning bricks. I didn't know you could clean bricks with hydrochloric acid. That's a new one. So after some, you know, light conversation, Edwards responded to Dahmer's request to turn his head and view his tropical fish whereupon Dahmer placed a handcuff upon his wrist. When Edwards asked, what's happening? Dahmer unsuccessfully attempted to cuff his wrist together, then told Edwards to accompany him to the bedroom to pose for nude pictures. While inside the bedroom, Edwards noted nude male posters on the wall and that a videotape of The Exorcist 3 was playing. You couldn't pick a better movie than The Exorcist 3. And this is 91, man. You could put Weekend and Bernie's on. That would be good. Right. You know, hey, everyone loves Bernie. He also noted a blue 57-gallon drum in the corner from which a strong odor emanated. Yeah, we know what that odor was, folks. He then brand Dahmer then brandished a knife and informed Edwards he intended to take nude pictures of him. In an attempt to appease Dahmer, because you know, when you're in a situation like this, you gotta play for time. Edwards unbuttoned his shirt, saying he would allow him to do so if he would remove the handcuffs and put the knife away. In response to this promise, Dahmer simply turned his attention towards the TV. Edwards observed Dahmer rocking back and forth and chanting before turning his attention back to him. Was it Mecca Lecca High, Mecca Heine Ho? <laughs> Mecca Lecca High, Mecca Chani Ho. He placed his head on Edwards' chest, listened to his heartbeat, and with the knife pressed, to, pressed against his intended victim, informed Edwards that he intended to eat his heart. In continuous attempts to prevent Dahmer from attacking him, Edwards repeated that he was Dahmer's friend and he was not going to run away. 
Edwards had decided he was going to either jump from a window or run through the unlocked front door on the next opportunity. When Edwards next stated he needed to use the bathroom, he asked if they could sit with a beer in the living room where there was air conditioning. Yeah, Dahmer said, sure, let's go for it. And the pair walked to the living room where Edwards exited the bathroom, or when he exited. In, inside the living room, Edwards waited until he observed Dahmer have a momentary lapse of concentration before requesting to use the bathroom again. When he rose from the couch, Edward noticed that Dahmer was not holding the handcuffs, whereupon Edwards punched him in the face, knocked him off balance, and ran out the front door. At 11.30 p.m. on July 22nd, Edwards flagged down two Milwaukee police officers, Robert Roth and Rolf Mueller, at the corner of North 25th Street. The officers noted Edwards had a handcuff attached to his wrist, whereupon he explained to the officers that a, quote, freak had placed the handcuffs upon him and asked if the police could remove them. When the officers' handcuff keys failed to fit the brand of handcuffs, Edwards agreed to accompany the officers to the apartment where Edwards stated he had spent the previous five hours before escaping. Oh, my the God. Like, there was this, like, really freaky dude that was, like, putting handcuffs on me and stuff. Can you take him off? Okay. When the officers and Edwards arrived at apartment 213, Dahmer invited the trio inside and acknowledged he had placed the handcuffs upon Edwards, although he offered no explanation as to why he had done so. Sir, can you explain why these handcuffs aren't him? I don't know. <laughs> at this point, Edwards divulged to the officers that Dahmer had also brandished a large knife upon him and that this had happened in the bedroom. Dahmer made no comment to this revelation, indicating to one of the officers, which was Mueller, that the key to the handcuffs was in his bedside dresser. As Mueller entered the bedroom, Dahmer attempted to pass him to retrieve the key himself, whereupon the second officer present informed him to, quote, again, back off. In the bedroom, Mueller noted there was a large knife beneath the bed. He saw an open drawer, which, upon closer inspection, contained scores of Polaroid pictures, many of which were of human bodies in various stages of dismemberments. Mueller noted the decor indicated they had been taken in the same apartment in which they were standing. Mueller walked into the living room to show them to his partner, uttering the words, These are for real. Uh... Partner, you ain't gonna believe what I found. Mm -hmm. When Dahmer saw that Mueller was holding several of his Polaroids, he fought with the officers eh, too late in an effort to resist arrest. Right. The officers quickly overpowered him, cuffed his hands behind his back, and called a second squad car for backup. Yeah. How do you like being cuffed, huh? How do you like being cuffed? <laughs> At this point, Mueller opened the refrigerator. <laughs> to reveal the freshly severed head of a black male on the bottom shelf. His dauber lay pinned on the floor beneath Roth. He turned his head towards the officers and muttered the words, Quote, For what I did, I should be dead. Hey, partner. Hello, my baby. Hello, my honey. Hello, my ranking now. A more detailed search of the apartment, which I'm so glad I didn't have to do, 
conducted by the Milwaukee Police's Criminal Investigation Bureau, revealed a total of four severed heads in Dahmer's kitchen. Uh, yeah, think about it, like being told, like, yeah, go in here. We're not quite sure we're going to find, but whatever it is, it's going to be man, really, really. You know, those those CSI guys, man, they got to see some of the, the, the they, they've got to see some of the craziest stuff out there. Yeah. Four severed heads in just the kitchen. A total of seven skulls, some painted and some bleached, were found in the bedroom and inside a closet. Like the ultimate horror. Right. Like if, how did the I'm I mean, I know they probably have to go through like a, a case like this. They've got to go see the the company doctor, you know. Yeah. It's uh -huh. like how, how do those guys fucking sleep? Yeah. I mean, yeah, think about going to like a haunted house after that. You can just like walk right through it. Everything be thrown you're walking at you. around going, I saw better two weeks ago, a uh, month ago. I saw better than this. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Investigators discovered collected blood drippings. Oh, God. Yeah. I forgot about that part. Upon a tray at the bottom of Dahmer's refrigerator, plus two human hearts and a portion of arm muscle, each wrapped inside plastic bags. Boy, I'm so glad I already ate. Upon the shelves. In Dahmer's freezer, investigators discovered an entire torso plus a bag of human organs and flesh stuffed. Oh, God. Flesh stuck to the ice at the bottom. It's gross enough when just regular stuff stuck. Right. It's gross ice. enough when you have to, like, like there's a chicken thigh stuck there when you're defrosting. I'm thinking even, like, the lettuce or whatever, the piece of, like, the... Like, oh, yeah. That's, yeah. like... Ugh, I have to clean that anyway, but... Man, oh. Seriously, how did these guys sleep after this? Yeah. I mean, and you know... I don't think at this time they were, like, back in 91, I don't think they had, like, counseling. Maybe this is, like, stuff, like, that started them getting counseling as part of it, too. It could have been, but, I mean, Milwaukee, you uh -huh. know... Oh, God, no. No, my cousins lived in Ma Madison, the capital, so no, it's like real weird. If you like go up north from Chicago, you know, you take like ninety ninety four, yeah, through downtown. Well, then once you get like out of downtown towards the northern suburbs, ninety and ninety four split. One goes straight up north to Milwaukee. The other one veers off towards Madison. So, like two of Wisconsin's biggest cities are in the lower part of the state. Yeah. And, you know, they said there's only two things to do in Wisconsin, drink and become a serial killer. Yeah, so. Dahmer checked both boxes. Uh-huh. Did that, I don't think that Dean drank. Probably not, because, like, you know, his mom. You know, it was like. A, well, well, right, yeah, mom was a big influence. Sale. Yeah, so. He was a big influence for Ed. Yeah. Elsewhere in apartment 213. Investigators discovered two entire skeletons, a pair of severed hands, two severed and preserved penises. I don't even want to know what he was doing with those. A mummified scalp, and in the 57-gallon drum, three further dismembered torsos dissolving in the acid solution. A total of 74 Polaroid pictures detailing the dismemberment of his victims were found. 
In reference to the discovery or to the recovery of the body parts and artifacts at 924 North 25th Street, the chief medical examiner later stated, it was more like dismantling someone's museum than an actual crime scene. If this is a museum, no, because I think the muter would have been like, uh, no, no. I want to see that museum sometime. I want to see that big ass tumor. The colon thing, too. <laughs> uh, that, was that a colon tumor? Yeah. Well, no, it was like five pounds of poop in there. That's what it was. It was a tumor. It was impacted? Yep. Yeah, James drew a picture for um, of nice. it. Nice. Well, for, and he gave it to Dina of Twisted Philly when at a live podcast reading. Oh, nice. Yeah. Nice. Uh-huh. Gotta love them. Gotta love them. We had gone there with her. Like few Yeah, ago. I remember you telling me I I, yeah. I need I'd like to go there myself mm -hmm. just just because it's a museum and it's got weird and twisted things and I like weird and twisted things. Yeah. And my dorm was on the same street. I mean Oh nice. Blocks away. But yeah, I had to pass it all the time. So Back to Dahmer. <laughs> Beginning in the early hours of July 23rd, 1991, Dahmer was questioned by Detective Patrick Kennedy as to the murders he had committed and the evidence found in his apartment. Over the following two weeks, Kennedy and later Detective Dennis Murphy conducted numerous interviews with Dahmer, which, when combined, totaled over 60 hours. Now, Dahmer waived his right to have a lawyer present throughout his interrogations, adding he wished to confess all as he had created this horror. If it only makes sense, I'd do everything to put an end to it. He readily admitted to having murdered 16 young men in Wisconsin since 87, with one further victim, Stephen Hicks, killed in Ohio in 78. Now, most of his victims had been rendered unconscious prior to the murder, although some had died as a result of having acid or boiling water injected into their brain. As he had no memory of the murder of his second victim, Stephen Tumoy, he was unsure whether he was unconscious when he when beaten to death, although he did concede it was possible that his viewing the exposed chest of Tumoy while in a drunken stupor may have led him to unsuccessfully attempt to terror tear Tumoy's heart out from his chest. Almost all the murders Dahmer committed after moving into the Oxford Apartments had involved a ritual of posing the victim's body in suggestive positions, typically with the chest thrust outwards prior to dismemberment. Now Dahmer readily admitted to engaging in necrophilia with several of his victims' bodies, including performing oral sex acts with their viscera as he dismembered their bodies in his bathtub. Scrubbing bubbles is not going to clean that up. Having noted that much of the blood pooled inside his victim's chest after death, Dahmer first removed their internal organs, then suspended the torso so the blood drained into the tub before dicing any organs he did not wish to retain 
and paring the flesh from the body. The bones he wished to dispose of were pulverized or acidified with soliacs and bleach solutions used to aid in the preservation of the skeletons and skulls he wished to keep. Now Dahmer confessed to having consumed the hearts, liver, biceps, and portions of thigh of three victims he had killed at Oxford. This was Raymond Smith, Ernest Miller, and Oliver Lacey, and have and to have retained the flesh and organs of other victims for intended consumption. Because Midwest winters are notoriously brutal and you can be snowed in for days. Typically, Dahmer would tenderize the body parts he intended to consume prior to preparing meals flavored with various condiments. Like I seem to being like Martha Stewart with a cooking show. Why did the Food Network pick this up, you know? Cooking with Dahmer. Referencing his reason for consuming his victims, Dahmer stated he had initially consumed portions of his victims due to curiosity before adding, oh, I suppose in an odd way, it made me feel they, they were even more a permanent part of me. Describing the increase in his rate of killing in the two months prior to his arrest, Dahmer stated he had been completely swept along with his compulsion to kill, adding, it was an incessant and never-ending desire to be with someone at whatever cost. Someone good-looking, really nice-looking. It just filled my thoughts all day long. When asked as to why he had preserved a total of seven skulls and the entire skeletons of two victims, Dahmer stated he had been in the process of constructing a private altar of victim skulls, which he had intended to display on the black table located in his living room and upon which he had photographed the bodies of many of his victims. Was he trying to build like the, the one-eyed Willie bone organ piano thing? I think it was just like, a, God, I can't remember. But I think it was just the table with the bones okay. on top of it. It wasn't, you know... It made of the bones. Now, this display of skulls was to be adorned at each side with the complete skeletons of Miller and Lacey. The four severed heads found in his kitchen were to have all flesh removed and used in this altar, as was the skull of at least one future victim. Incense sticks were to be placed at each end of the black table, above which Dahmer intended to place a large blue lamp with extending blue globe lights. The entire construction was to be placed before a window covered with a black opaque shower curtain in front of which Dahmer intended to sit in a black leather chair. When asked in a November 18, 1991 interview whom the altar was dedicated to, Dahmer replied, Myself. It was a place where I could feel at home. He further described his intended altar as a place for meditation, from where he believed he could draw a sense of power, adding... If this had happened six months later, that's what they would have found. You know, instead of doing murdering all those people, he could have just bought Halloween decorations. Yes, but then they wouldn't have been real. It doesn't matter. I know, right? And he wouldn't have been arrested and blah, 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 blah. Right. He like, wouldn't yeah. murder people. He wouldn't have ate them. Mm -hmm. He wouldn't have made a, a weird-looking altar in his living room. Oh, it would have been weird-looking. just wouldn't have been... Right. Really weird. 
but even now looking at this, why didn't like HGTV pick him up for a home improvement show? Mm-hmm. You know, decorating with Dahmer. Yeah. And you know, if the internet was available, then too, it could have been different because it would have been a lot easier to buy Halloween decorations. Well, right. And he could have had a YouTube yeah. channel going, I'm going to show you how to build a bone altar today. Yeah, see? Exactly. On July 25th, 1991, Dahmer was charged with four counts of first-degree murder. By August 22nd, he had been charged with a further 11 murders committed in Wisconsin. On September 14th, investigators in Ohio, having uncovered hundreds of bone fragments in woodland behind the address in which Dahmer had confessed to killing his first victim, formally identified two molars and vertebrae with x-ray records of Hicks. Three days later, Dahmer was charged by authorities in Ohio with Hicks murder. Amazing those bone fragments lasted that long. I think I read something where they may still be finding some out there. I guess I wouldn't be surprised the way he broke them up so little in the woods. Right. I mean, I mean, it's totally possible. I hate to make the comparison, but it's like, um, you know, the Civil War battlefields, they're still finding skeletons out there of yeah. dead soldiers. Mm-hmm. I think uh, Gettysburg, no, no, the latest one was um, First Bull Run. They excavated a, a pit with um, amputated limbs, and at the bottom they found two full intact skeletons. Yeah. I think it was in um, Williamsburg, too, like recently, the last 10 years or something, they found. Really? I mean, just, yeah. Could be wrong. It was, it was one of the places we went to, yeah, last night. Right. Month. Well, I mean, you know, it, it what is nothing for, like, yellow fever to come through. Yeah. And white people, and they just tossed them into a mass grave. Yeah, so. Dahmer was not charged with the attempted murder of Edwards, nor with the murder of Tumoy. He was not charged with Tumoy's murder because the Milwaukee County District Attorney only brought charges where murder could be proven beyond a reasonable doubt. And Dahmer had no memory of actually committing this particular murder, for which no physical evidence of the crime existed. At a scheduled preliminary hearing on January 13th, 1992, I was in Greece. Yep. I was, I had just arrived on the island not too long, not too long before that. Dahmer pleaded guilty, but insane to 15 counts of murder. His trial began on January 30th, 1992. He was tried in Milwaukee for 15 counts of first-degree murder before Judge Lawrence Graham. By pleading guilty on the 13th to the charges brought against him, he had waived his rights to a trial to establish guilt as defined in Wisconsin law. Attorneys at his trial debated whether he suffered from either a mental or personality disorder. I say two. I say both. The prosecution claimed that any disorders did not deprive him of the ability to appreciate the criminality of his conduct or to deprive him of the ability to resist his impulses. 
The defense argued that Dahmer suffered from a mental disease and was driven by obsessions and impulses he was unable to control. Defense experts argued that Dahmer was insane due to his necrophilic drive, his compulsion to have sexual encounters with corpses. <laughs> I think we can both say that, you know, our marriages resulted in that. <laughs> hey, you agree. That's all that matters to me. Defense expert Fred Berlin testified that Dahmer was unable to conform his conduct at the time at the time that he committed the crimes due to his paraphilia, or more specifically, necrophilia. Judith Becker, a professor of psychiatry and psychology, was the second expert witness for the defense. She diagnosed Dahmer as a necrophiliac. Although she added, Dahmer had informed her he preferred comatose sexual partners to deceased ones 75% of the time. He must have gotten with my ex-wife. The final defense expert to testify, forensic psychiatrist Carl Wallstrom, diagnosed Dahmer with necrophilia, borderline personality disorder, schizotypal, pers schizotypical personality disorder, alcohol dependence, well, that's a big one, and a psychotic disorder. On February 8th, Fred Fostel testified on behalf of the prosecution. Fostel testified to his belief that Dahmer was without mental disease or defect at the time he committed the murders. He described Dahmer as a calculating and cunning individual able to differentiate between right and wrong with the ability to control his actions and whose lust overpowered his morals. Although Fostel did state his belief that Dahmer was a paraphiliac, his conclusion was that Dahmer is not a sadist. The second and final witness to appear for the prosecution, forensic psychiatrist Park Dietz, began his testimony on February 12th. Dietz testified that he did not believe Dahmer had any form of mental disease or defect at the time that he committed the crimes, stating that Dahmer went to great lengths to be alone with his victim and to have no witnesses. He explained that there was ample evidence that Dahmer prepared in advance for each murder. Therefore, his crimes were not impulsive. Although Dietz did concede any acquisition of a paraphilia was not a matter of personal choice, he stated his belief that Dahmer's habit of becoming intoxicated prior to committing each of the murders was significant. If he had an impulse to kill or a compulsion to kill, Dietz testified, he wouldn't have to drink alcohol to overcome it. He only has to drink alcohol to overcome it because he is inhibited against killing. Dietz noted that Dahmer strongly identified with the villains of The Exorcist Three and Return of the Jedi, particularly the level of power held by these characters. Expounding on the significance of these movies on Dahmer's psyche and many of the murders committed at the Oxford Apartments, Dietz explained that Dahmer occasionally viewed scenes from these films before searching for a victim. Dietz diagnosed Dahmer with substance use disorder, paraphilia, and schizotypal personality disorder. Two court-appointed mental health professionals testifying independently of either prosecution or defense were forensic psychiatrist George Palermo and clinical psychologist Samuel Friedman. 
Palermo stated that the murders were the result of a pent-up aggression within himself. He killed those men because he wanted to kill the source of his homosexual attraction to them. In killing them, he killed what he hated in himself. Palermo concluded that Dahmer had a severe mixed personality disorder with antisocial, obsessive-compulsive, sadistic, fetishistic, borderline, and necrophilic features, but otherwise legally sane. Really? I know all that stuff, but I have easy. Friedman well, tested, yeah. hmm? well so I was looking at, you know, the part where you said he wanted to kill the source of his homosexual attraction. Isn't that the same thing Gacy did? Yeah. Okay, let's use Gacy's argument. Uh-huh. How'd that work for you, Chief? Friedman testified that it was a longing for companionship that caused Dahmer to kill and testified that Dahmer was not psychotic. He described Dahmer as amiable, pleasant to be with, courteous, with a sense of humor, conventionally handsome. Eh, kind of dorky looking, I thought. <laughs> Charming in manner. He was, and still is, a bright young man. He diagnosed Dahmer with a personality disorder, not otherwise specified, featuring borderline obsessive-compulsive and sadistic traits. Oh, sorry, I was looking at something about David Lee Roth. Okay, the trial lasted two weeks on February, oh, on, on Valentine's Day. Well, hey, that's probably what he was saving the hearts for, you know? Nice romantic dinner. How was he going to prepare them? Was he going to, like, deep fry them, saute? I was thinking saute. I'm, I'm thinking he probably wanted to do it like a steak, you know? Grill it, put some nice grill marks on it. I'm sure Ted Allen from Chop would be all, all over that. So on Valentine's Day, both attorneys delivered their closing arguments to the jury. Each attorney was allowed to speak for two hours. Defense attorney Gerald Boyle argued first repeatedly referring to the testimony of the mental health professionals, almost all of whom who had agreed he was afflict Dahmer was afflicted with a mental disease. Boyle argued that Dahmer's compulsive killings had been a result of a sickness he discovered at shows. This ain't Wheel of Fortune. You can't just spin the wheel and, you know, pick your illness. Boyle portrayed Dahmer as a desperately lonely and profoundly sick individual, so out of control he could not conform his conduct anymore. Now, following the defense counsel's 75-minute closing argument, Michael McCann delivered his closing argument for the prosecution, describing Dahmer as a sane man in full control of his actions who simply strove to avoid detection. Well, all criminals want to avoid detection. I'm I'm sure there's not a criminal out there that wants to go out. Hey, I'm killing people. Look at me, ma. McCain described Dahmer as a calculating individual who killed to control his victims and retained their bodies, 
merely to afford himself a prolonged period of sexual pleasure. McCann argued that by pleading guilty but insane to the charges, Dahmer was seeking to escape responsibility for his crimes. You know, if he saved up the right amount of money, he could have went to one of them adult stores and, and bought a, a, a complete anatomical doll that, you know, would have served his needs. On February 15, the court reconvened to hear the verdict. Dahmer was ruled to be sane and not suffering from a mental disorder at the time of each of the 15 murders for which he was tried, although in each count, two of the 12 jurors signified their dissent. Formal sentencing was postponed until the 17th. On this date, Dahmer's attorneys announced his client wished to address the court. Oh my God, that would have been great. He then approached the lectern and read from a statement prepared by himself and his defense as he faced the judge. You know, you know, you know the part where they say you should not take the stand or plead your case in front of the judge? Listen. Because in all the true crime cases I've listened to, and read where the the guilty person wants to say something to the judge, it usually sinks them. In this statement, he emphasized that he had never desired freedom following his arrest, and that he frankly wished for his own death. Well, there was a couple of bailiffs in there that were armed. I'm sure they would have fulfilled your wish right there, buddy. He further stressed that none of his murders had been motivated by hatred, that he understood that nothing he either said or did could undo the terrible harm he had caused to the families of his victims and the city of Milwaukee, and that he and his doctors believed his criminal behavior had been motivated by mental disorders. Dahmer added that his medical knowledge had given him some peace, and that although he understood that society would never forgive him, he hoped God would. God's got a big no on that one, buddy. I'm I'm sure even God's got a list of people he says, I will not forgive. Jeffrey Dahmer is right up there with Adolf Hitler. Yeah, maybe behind Mussolini. It's like the second level beyond under. Right. Well, you got to think there's a hierarchy to... Yeah, uh, there's a hierarchy. Eye. I don't think they're quite at the same level, but yeah. No, but, I mean, you know, even Jim Jones is ahead of Dahmer. Yeah. I mean, Dahmer did 15. Jones did 900. Yeah, plus, so. Yeah, it's rational. Mm -hmm. Dahmer closed his statement with, I know my time in prison will be terrible, but I deserve whatever I get because of what I have done. Thank you, Your Honor. And I am prepared for your sentence, which I know will be the maximum. I ask for no consideration. He then returned to his seat to await formal sentencing. Oh, I'd have been like, buddy, you ain't got to wait. I'm going to tell you right now. Mr. Dahmer, please stand your happy ass up. He was then sentenced to life plus 10 years upon the first two counts. The remaining 13 counts carried a mandatory sentence of life plus 70 years. You ain't getting that. You ain't seeing the light of day. You ain't even. No. You, 
what, what was that Jackie Gleason said? I, I've seen this clip. It was like Burt Reynolds' birthday, and Jackie Gleason showed up dressed as Sheriff Buford T. Justice from the Smokey and the Bandit movies. He goes, I'm going to arrest you and put you away for your natural life. And then when you die, I'm going to put your skeleton on display for your natural death. <laughs> a death penalty was not the death penalty was not an option for Judge Graham to consider at the penalty phase as Wisconsin had abolished capital punishment in 1850, 1853 let that sink in yeah so basically if you have to go <laughs> murder somebody you know find a reason to go up to Wisconsin first. <laughs> right. You best off to do in Wisconsin. You're just going to get life. Yeah. So. Well, if they abolished it in 18. Yeah. Gene got. Gene got life. But I think Gene died in. The prison hospital. I want to say. I don't know. I've been searching for books on Ed Gein Because I want to cover him next year. Sometime, I'm, I'm thinking more towards Halloween for Ed. Well, he inspired so many. He was the inspiration for so many movie killers. Upon hearing of his sentence, his father Lionel and stepmother Sherry requested to be allowed a 10 minute private meeting with their son before he was transferred to Columbia Correctional Institute in Portage to begin his sentence. This request was granted, and a trio exchanged hugs and well wishes before Dahmer was escorted away. I, I kind of picture his dad kind of smacking him like Mo Howard, you know? What's up, Nana? Three months after his conviction in Milwaukee, Dahmer was extradited to Ohio to be tried for the murder of his first victim, Stephen Hicks. In a court hearing lasting just 45 minutes, Dahmer again pleaded guilty to the charges and was six sentenced to a 16th term of life imprisonment on May 1st, 1992. Upon sentencing, he, he was transferred to the Columbia Correctional Institution. For the first year of his incarceration, Dahmer was placed in solitary confinement due to concerns for his physical safety should he come into contact with fellow inmates. You think? Hmm. Yeah, I'm sure they were all like, hey, yo, come hang hey, with us. Hey, hey it's that crazy Literally, Come hang. Ugh. Hey, it's that crazy guy that likes to eat people. Mm. He should be fun at checkers. You're right. He received well, ample correspondence, of course, from individuals across the world with several individuals donating money which he spent on items such as uh, here's a throwback, cassette recordings, stationery, cigarettes, and magazines. Upon Dahmer's request, after one year in solitary confinement, he was transferred to a less secure unit where he was assigned a two-hour daily work detail cleaning the toilet block. By 1993, this work detail had expanded to include cleaning the prison gymnasium. Shortly after completing his lengthy confessions in 1991, Dahmer had requested to Detective Murphy that he be given a copy of the Bible. This request was granted, and Dahmer gradually devoted himself to Christianity 
and again, of course, became a born-again Christian. On his father's urging, he also read creationist books from the Institute for Creation Research. In May 1994, Dahmer was baptized by Roy Ratcliffe, a minister in the Church of Christ and a graduate of Oklahoma Christian University, whom he had met on April 20th. This service was conducted in the prison whirlpool, and it also happened to be the same day that Gacy was executed. Um, oh, damn. Yeah, I was home by then. See, I remember when Gacy was executed. Because... Yeah, that's, yeah, it was the same day that in, in the um, what the Netflix show with um the oh the, the that most recent one I think yeah it was mentioned because they actually I think they sliced the two things together Dahmer or Dahmer being baptized and, and Gacy getting Gacy murdered being executed yeah because I remember uh, the local paper here ran it on the front page and it said. Uh, you know, Gacy executed, and there was pe people holding signs that said "No tears for this clown." Yeah, which it's like I, I mean, it was like things, but I actually I don't, I don't really remember it. It was, just, it was huge here. Well, yeah, obviously, but I mean, I was old enough to remember. I just, it just, and I'm, I'm look, I'm trying to remember uh, the creation. Oh, that's the. Uh, that's the the belief that um how the bible said that you know how the earth was created they take that seriously uh -huh. to them the earth is only either three or six thousand years old yeah so but paleontologists and geologists have proven creationism wrong yeah But yeah, I remember watching all this on the news, though, back in 91. Yeah, for some reason, um, oh, for some reason, Dahmer wasn't, the day that Dahmer was baptized, around here was all Gacy because big local well, yeah, story. It wouldn't have been, like, really on the news anyway, I don't think, though. Well, no, but I mean, still, uh, with, with everything anyway. that was going yeah. on at that point. Gacy was the big story here. I remember yeah. that much. Mm -hmm. But that's what I remember when, like, with the apartment, I remember them watching, taking out, you know, the barrels of stuff. and the, I, I, rem I think I remember seeing in the toxic I waste outfits. Right, because I remember, you see, on the base in Greece, we, used to, we, we mainly watched CNN. It was the only news service that we mm -hmm. got from... Yeah from the states and i kind of remember seeing reports about a guy being caught in, in wisconsin yeah as i'm sitting there eating breakfast i'm watching them haul the yeah all the stuff out and i'm like oh fuck it's wisconsin you know what can i say mm -hmm. Words. Oh, yeah, right here. Okay. Following Dahmer's baptism, Radcliffe visited him on a weekly basis up until November 1994. What happened then? Dahmer and Radcliffe regularly discussed the prospect of death, and Dahmer questioned whether he was sinning against God by continuing to live. 
Referring to his crimes in the 1994 interview with Stone Phillips on Dateline, Dahmer had stated, if a person doesn't think that there is a God to be accountable to, then what's the point of trying to modify your behavior to keep it within acceptable ranges? That's how I thought anyway. On July 3rd, 1994, fellow inmate Osvaldo Durthy attempted to slash Dahmer's throat with a razor embedded in a toothbrush, which is commonly called a shiv, people. As Dahmer, you can do it while he's sitting in the prison chapel? That's some balls. So he tried to do it as Dahmer sat in the prison chapel after the weekly church service was concluded. He received a superficial wound and was not seriously hurt in the incident. According to Dahmer's family, he had long been ready to die and any accepted and accepted any punishment for which he might endure in prison. In addition to his father and stepmother's maintaining regular contact, his mother Joyce also maintained regular contact with her son. Prior to his arrest, the two had not seen each other since Christmas of 83. Joyce related that in her son's weekly phone calls, whenever she expressed concerns for his physical well-being, he responded to the effect of, it doesn't matter, Mom. I don't care it's if something happens to me. Yeah, it's kind of like with the mystic by that much. <laughs> You're right. You know, the the old Maxwell smart line, you know? Yeah, uh-huh. I mean, we'll, we'll talk about this when we do Berkowitz, but wasn't he attacked in prison? Oh, uh, yeah. Was it like burned or something? Well, like yes. Kurt. Well, well, Manson was burned, too, I think, or something. Manson's Well, Berkowitz... If you see in later um, later interviews with man, he's got a slash across his throat. Yeah. I'll look it up and then like at the end, I'll say what on, it was. Right. On the morning of November 28th, 1994, Dahmer left his cell to conduct his assigned work detail. Accompanying him were two fellow inmates, Jesse Anderson and Christopher Scarver. They were left unsupervised in the showers of the prison gym for approximately 20 minutes. No, no, you don't. No. At approximately 8.10, Dahmer was discovered on the floor of the bathrooms of the gym, suffering from extreme head wounds. He had been severely bludgeoned about the head and face with a 20-inch metal bar. His head had been repeatedly struck against the wall in the assault. Although Dahmer was still alive and rushed to a nearby hospital, he was pronounced dead an hour later. Anderson had been beaten with the same instrument and died two days later from his wounds. Scarver, who was serving a life sentence for a murder committed in 90, informed authorities he had first attacked Dahmer with the metal bar as Dahmer was cleaning a staff locker room before attacking Anderson as Anderson cleaned an inmate locker room. According to Scarver, Dahmer didn't yell or make any noise as he was attacked. Immediately after attacking both men, Scarver, who was thought to be a schizophrenic, returned to his cell and informed prison guards, God told me to do it. Jesse Anderson and Jeffrey Dahmer are dead. Now, Scarver was adamant he had not planned the attacks in advance, although he later divulged to investigators he had concealed the 20-inch iron bar used to kill both men in his clothing shortly before the killings. 
Upon learning of his death, Dahmer's mother, Joyce, responded angrily to the media. Well, now is everybody happy? Now that he's bludgeoned to death, is that good enough for everyone? Huh? Is it? The response of the families of his victims was mixed. Some celebrated while others were saddened. Catherine Lacey, the mother of victim Albert Lacey, remarked, The hurt is worse now because he's not suffering like we are. The district attorney who prosecuted Dahmer cautioned against turning Scarver into a folk hero. Oh, where is it? Saying that Dahmer's death was still a murder. On May 15, 1995, Scarver was, was sentenced to two additional terms of life imprisonment for the murders of Dahmer and Anderson. And he's like, what the hell? I'm already serving one. Dahmer there are two more up there, bud. Yeah, right. I got nowhere to go. Yeah, right. Like, just standing on my head. Dahmer had stated in his will that he wished for no services to be conducted and that he wished to be cremated. In September of 95, Dahmer's body was cremated and his ashes divided between his parents. Owing to a disagreement, which, yeah, I remember all this, between his parents as to whether Dahmer's brain should be retained for medical research. This organ was initially retained, but also cremated in December 95. I think like, they wanted to do that just to see what drove him to, to eat people. Yeah, like his dad was the one that wanted it uh, preserved and his, or, you know, at least, you know, cut up and studied. But his he mom was, yeah, just wanted it to be um, cremated. On August 5th, 1991, so going a little bit back in time, as the nature and scale of Dahmer's crimes initially came to light, a candlelight vigil to celebrate and heal the Milwaukee community was attended by more than 400 people. Present at the vigil were community leaders, gay rights activists, and family members of several of Dahmer's victims. Organizers stated the purpose of the vigil was to enable Milwaukeeans to share their feelings of pain and anger over what happened. Dahmer's murders were committed at a time of heightened racial tension in Milwaukee. Professor of Community Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, Walter, yeah, sorry, Walter Farrell, later stated race relations in the city had been in a state of disrepair for nearly a decade at the time of Dahmer's arrest. In an August 1991 interview given to the Christian Science Monitor, Farrell stated that news of the murders, as well as the conduct of Milwaukee police officers John Falzerak and Joseph Gabrish with regards to victim Conorak, uh, Synthesabone, yeah, I feel too bad about that, exasperated and highlighted racial tensions within the city. Milwaukee's gay scene was generally underground and transient in nature at the time of Dahmer's murders, with many sexually active gay men using aliases. Many in the city's gay community were nervous of the intentions of others after the extent of Dahmer's murders became known, although the fear and distrust generated by Dahmer's crimes was short-lived. As the 1990s progressed, the usage of aliases became less common, among members of Milwaukee's gay community. The Oxford Apartments at 924 North 25th Street, where Dahmer had killed 12 of his victims, 
was demolished in November of 1992. The site is now a vacant lot, even almost, well, yeah, past 30 yeah, years. Still 31 years, still a vacant lot. Ultimate plans to convert the site into either a memorial garden, a playground, or to reconstruct new housing have failed to materialize. Yeah, still a vacant lot. Yeah, so it's just basically a dump now. Oh, that's great. That's so much better than anything. Right. Dahmer's estate was awarded to the families of 11 of his victims who had sued for damages. In 96, Thomas Jacobson, a lawyer representing eight of the families, announced a planned auction of his estate. Although victims' relatives stated the motivation was not greed, the announcement sparked controversy. Well, it'd be like if um, they did it with Gacy's stuff. Uh, and, and I can see why it sparked controversy. A civic group, Milwaukee Civic Pride, was quickly established in an effort to raise the funds to purchase and destroy many of Dahmer's possessions. The group pledged $407,225, including a $100,000 gift by Milwaukee's real estate developer, Joseph Zilber, for purchase of Dahmer's estate. Five of the eight families represented by Jacobson agreed to the terms, and Dahmer's possessions were subsequently destroyed and buried in an undisclosed Illinois landfill like we wanted the crap. We got enough stuff in our landfills. We don't need Dahmer's. We can actually have mob bodies out there. We don't know. I mean, the Union stockyards are closed, so you know, their body disposal now sucks in Chicago. Yeah, I've got this working theory based on some of the stuff that I've read about, like the Capone era Chicago, that when they said, like, this guy disappeared and they never found a body, he was taken to the stockyards. Hogs will eat anything. We hear it, kills cults and nut jobs 2.0, do not condone murder. Or ways of disposing bodies. <laughs> but if you do, we want first to crack at the interview. Yeah, like that's the only, that's the asterisk next to it. You're right. There's <laughs> always been the asterisk. We don't condone it, but if you do it, we want first interview. Yep. I'll even come to the jailhouse with the recording equipment. Lionel is now retired and lives with his second wife, Sherry. Both have refused to change their surname and have prof professed their love for of Je Jeffrey in spite of his crimes. In 94, Lionel published a book, A Father's Story, and donated a portion of the proceeds from his book to the victim's families. Most of the families showed support for Lionel and Sherry, although three families subsequently sued Lionel. Two for using their names in the book without obtaining prior consent, and the third family, that of Stephen Hicks, filing a wrongful death suit against Lionel Sherry and former wife Joyce, citing parental negligence as the cause of the claim. You can't cite parental negligence. Was he like, he was 18, right? Yeah, he was like 18. He, he, technically, he was an adult. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the whole legally and everything, so. You can't say, oh, parental neglect, or he was 18. He was in a, 
legally mm -hmm. an adult. Yeah. Now you can say parental neglect if you you know for other reasons, but not not that. Joyce died of cancer in November on November twenty seventh, two thousand. Prior to her death, she had attempted suicide on at least one occasion. Dahmer's younger brother David changed his name and lives in anonymity. He was the smart one in the group. And that, folks, is the wrap up to the to the Thanksgiving cannibal tradition. We are glad that you joined us on this wild and crazy ride. Because if we're going to do this, we had to kick it off with Dahmer because it's tradition. So, if you're looking for us out there, we're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts from. Rate and review. I, I really haven't checked where we're at. No, I, I checked... I mean, I'm going to say this. I, I checked today on the toilet on our reviews. Really? Yeah, I, I had, man, I should have just called off today because medicine was kicking me hard. I I was going constantly. Yeah. I, I yeah. I, sh I should have just called off. And the funny thing is, is I don't know the call off number for work. <laughs> it's like, you know, choice then. Well, I was I was talking back with some of the girls and this one lady. She's like, "Yeah, once I got the call off number, the first thing I did was called off." <laughs> I like, this is probably what I'm going to do too. Take a day to sleep, but uh, rate and review. Join us on Facebook. And for Killers, Cults, and Nuts, did you find what you were looking for? Oh yeah, um, with Manson. It was in 84, somebody threw a paint thinner on him and then lit him on fire, which I'm surprised there wasn't, I guess there wasn't too much paint thinner because you really can't, like, later interviews, you know, the yeah role hearings, you can't really notice anything. And Berkowitz, no. it was, um, he, got, he got slashed in the throat back in the yeah. 70s. Yeah, because I've seen later interviews with Berkowitz where he's got like a scar running across his throat. Now, it don't look like it hit anything, hit anything major or was deep enough. Uh -huh. But we'll talk about that when we get to uh, David Berkowitz. Yep. So for Killers, Cults, and Nutjobs, I'm Scotty J. Say goodnight, Monica. Goodnight, Monica. <laughs>